Well, good evening. And for those of you listening online, I'm Associate Pastor Mike Gilbert, filling in for Pastor Rick this evening. Uh, one brief announcement before we get started. Uh, due to all the rain that we've had uh, today and tomorrow, um, the church bonfire that was scheduled for this Friday uh, has been rescheduled, tentatively rescheduled for next Friday, November 20th. So, so more to come on that. We'll post uh, to Facebook and, and the website, uh, Lord willing. So stay tuned for that. Well, the text that will give the, the framework for our message tonight is Matthew chapter 24, verse 12. Uh, if you'd like to turn there, Matthew 24, verse 12. And the title for our message uh, is Faithful to the End. And I, I hope that it will be an encouragement to us as we look to the promised faithfulness uh, of the Lord in the troubling times that we live. But also, as we consider that in these days of uh, increasing departure from the truth, departure from righteousness, that the Lord is looking for our faithfulness as well. So Matthew 24, verse 12. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And as we look at the implications of this statement of Jesus, we'll we'll look first at the context that he spoke it, uh, which was against a, a backdrop of apostate of an apostate religious system it was it was a, a religion that had exalted the word of man above the word of god and uh, we see this in his rebuke of the pharisees in the previous chapter he called them a, a desolate house as he spoke of it and, and also spoke of the coming judgment on that house but then also we hope to look at the encouragement that god has has in establishing his church he has established his church and he has called it his spiritual house in a similar day of rejection of the truth and, and lawlessness. And then lastly, that God's faithfulness to his church and then our call to, to be faithful in response. So as we consider these words of, of Jesus in their immediate context, we recognize that it was spoken uh, of the condition of mankind in a day yet to come, the tribulation period, after the church had been removed uh, from uh, the earth before Christ's second coming. But we can't help but notice a similarity in our day as many are are growing cold spiritually to the things of God. Not all are. We thank the Lord for that. That's encouraging. But it's a fight uh, as lawlessness presses in and as it it normalizes sin uh, to the degree that we see it today. And that this cooling process is is not something that takes place overnight. It's gradual over time. And uh, this is one of the primary reasons that we meet as we are now, as we assembled together as hebrews 10 24 and 25 says let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching so to stir up to to agitate to provoke even uh, to heat up our love for the lord and for each other but also for the lost who who are so desperate for the truth and if the need for this stirring up is, is so much more as we near the Lord's return, uh, this is something that is very valuable. That means that there is a, there's a tendency, there's a possibility for us to cool off, to, to settle undetected at the bottom spiritually. And, um, you know, as wickedness increases, this is a real thing that we can have to deal with. And um, to become, become more afraid of offending the one who is offending God than offending God himself. But... This is not what we're encouraged to do. We're encouraged not to be of the many who will grow cold, 
but to be of those who the Lord might use in these last days to reach those with the gospel. So the context, again, that the Lord spoke these words in Matthew 24, verse 12, is a a time of rejection of the truth and a time of coming judgment to a desolate house, the Lord said. In Matthew 23, the Lord had, had just finished exposing the corruption of the Pharisees. He had he exposed their religion as false. Uh, he called them hypocrites. He said those, he called them those who shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. And he condemned them for, for taking advantage of widows and went down through a whole list of things, putting on a pretense of righteousness in order to cover up their, their covetousness. Uh, these men would work very hard to, to make converts, to draw them into their religious system, and then they would make them even more corrupt than they were. And so the Lord called them out on that too. Along with their greed, uh, their neglect of the word, the weightier matters of the word, and being just overzealous about things that were non-essentials of the faith, but always ready to self-indulge and then conceal it with some kind of religious activity. So after the Lord had exposed the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in this way and their rejection of him as the Messiah, he said in Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven to 38, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you, gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And then he said, see, your house is left to you desolate. So their worship was corrupt. There was, there was no room for the Lord. Notice that the Lord called it, he said, your house, because he was not received or honored there where he ought to have been most honored. And then in the beginning of chapter 24, as if to to add emphasis to this, what he had just said, uh, their religious system being desolate, his disciples came to him and asked him if he had noticed the buildings of the temple. And he answered them in verse 2, and Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, I think it's important to point out that this was not a vindictive statement by the Lord. It wasn't something that was said that was born out of anger. Um, It was quite the opposite. There was sorrow in his tone over such a a missed opportunity to receive their king. So where he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, calling the name twice, it's an indication of this deep emotion, this sadness. And an example of this in Scripture is David's son Absalom. When David's son Absalom was killed, 2 Samuel chapter 18. Then the king was deeply moved and went to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place, O Absalom, my son, my son. And this is noteworthy because it draws out something very important for us. It draws out the mercy of God, his great patience with the sinner, Uh, through this, through repeated rejection. If only they would repent. And his sin and lawlessness uh, becomes uh, just more flagrant, more invasive in our day, in the culture that we live. I think the temptation of a righteous soul that sees this and is vexed by it is going to be at times where it's almost a desire to want to see judgment fall. And judgment will fall. But it will be so horrific that the Lord's view is different. So he says through the prophet Ezekiel, Chapter 33, he says, Say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, 
For why should you die, O house of Israel? So again, it's an emotional plea. There's a double emphasis on his desire for repentance and mercy. So similar to the Lord's condemnation of the Pharisees, the Apostle Paul, when he was saying farewell to the elders of the the strong Ephesian church, he showed his concern that, that there would be an infiltration of similarly godless men into the church, into the body of Christ. Acts chapter 20, he says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. We know that the Apostle John addressed this. He was he ministered at this church, and he wrote to them and encouraged them to test the spirits to see whether the message they received was from God or or not. And um, evidently, the Ephesian church did very well at this. They excelled at doing what Paul and John had exhorted them to do because uh, the Lord commended them. In Revelation chapter 2, he said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. So the Lord commended them. They had, they had worked very hard. They had worked very effectively at maintaining separation from the world and from the corruption that was in the world and faithful adherence to the word. And everything is so right about that. But there was one very important thing that the Lord did address that he had against this church. And that was that in all of their service and all of their perseverance in godliness, uh, uh, in godliness and, 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 and in this antichrist culture that they were in and all their efforts to maintain this separation from the pollution of the world and to, to test the spirits, to expose foul teaching, their love to Christ had grown cold and they were in danger of, of losing their opportunity to shine the light where it was most needed. And a lesson in this that, uh, that a believer is in danger of decline spiritually when work is placed above worship the two have to go together but serving should never come before just taking the time to sit at jesus feet and to adore him luke chapter 10 this is a passage that we know very well but i think it would be good for us to reflect on it just a bit uh, in the context that we're talking here so jesus or the, the as it goes in luke chapter 10 now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, You are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Well, Martha, without question, she loved the Lord. She welcomed him into her house, and she went right to serving, and and the text says that it was much serving. But all this serving had, had distracted her from worship, and as a result, she was very worried, and she was troubled about many things. But Mary, on the other hand, was not at all lazy. The text does not indicate that at all, but she had made a choice not to be distracted by by non-essential details. No matter how good, how matter well-intentioned they would be, if it was going to be at the expense expense of communion with Christ, 
And so Mary was not troubled. She wasn't worried. She wasn't anxious. And especially in troubling times, how much, how much worry, how much needless worry and anxiety can we avoid just by sitting at the feet of the Lord and uh, just meditating upon him and his word? So we look at this and we ask ourselves, well, which end of the spectrum am I on in my relationship to Christ? Is, is my service to him, which is in no way unimportant, uh, not at all. But is, it, is it not balanced by time at his feet in his word, worshiping and loving him? Because it's there where, where he can teach me, where he speaks to me, where he, he develops me. I can speak to him about the things that trouble me. Love grows and grace develops in our lives as we have this time of this, this undistracted worship of the Lord. And um, so if it is, I believe the Lord would speak to us personally in that very tender way, just as he did to Martha but again, with that double emphasis, you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. So when we speak of serving the Lord, we understand that this is the entirety of our life, not just a particular ministry or an aspect of our Christian lives that we're involved in. It's uh, all of our serving. None of it will be fruitful, not as fruitful as it should if there's not communion personally with Christ, personal adoration and worship of the Lord. And in this day when lawlessness and lovelessness, which is manifested in love of self, and moral decay is everywhere around us, all of a believer's efforts to separate and to uphold the word of God, if, if there is a low grade of personal devotion and worship of the Lord, uh, it will make our message cold. And we can even become indifferent uh, toward the very ones that desperately need to experience the love of Christ. But if, if that love hasn't been cultivated in our hearts, they won't experience it when we have the opportunity. But what about in the body of Christ, the church? Here's Mary and Martha, two sisters, one that was frustrated with the other because of misaligned priorities. And occasionally it can happen where an individual may find themselves irritated. Perhaps it's something about the church. Maybe it's a, a policy. Maybe it's how someone in, in the church is doing something, how something's conducted um, or, or not doing. And um, frustration can vent itself in some way. Uh, and, and I think that this passage teaches us that um, when this occurs, oftentimes there's, uh, there's, a, there's an overemphasis on uh, activity instead of worship rather than adoration. And so where the Lord is adored, love grows. And where, where love is, there's unity. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So back to the Lord's words to his disciples, speaking of, the condition of mankind as it approaches his second coming, he, he tells them that lawlessness will abound. Lawlessness is defined as, as a disregard for law. It's, it's unrestraint, a lack of law and order, and even the ability to enforce law. And this will be rampant both in the apostate church uh, and in society. The Lord is, is specifically speaking of a time yet in the future when there is this unrestrained evil on the earth because as the Bible says, the one who restrains the Holy Spirit in operation through the, the true and the faithful church has removed him, himself uh, from holding it back in judgment. But the scripture also teaches that this is a principle that we see already at work. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 7 says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. 
Only he who now restrains will do it will do so until he is taken out of the way. And the use of the word mystery is 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 not because this is a, a veiled or a secretive truth, but what was previously undetected or, or unknown is now being brought to light and it's being brought to light under the scrutiny of God's word. And I believe that this should be something that gives the Christian a, a great deal of comfort uh, and confidence in the fact that whatever's going on, the Lord has called it from the beginning. Uh, there's nothing happening in this world that is, that is out from under his observation or that is not on his timetable. And, and uh, in terms of what he is sovereignly willing to allow or to disallow for his purposes, which are always right. And for the Christian to, to know the word of God has, has called these things before they ever manifested themselves in the way that, that, that they are today. It stabilizes us and it, it strengthens us, our faith in God and in his providence, where there is so much unrest apart from that. So when we see lawlessness on the increase in just a, a, a brazen defiance of God, we're not rattled by it. But instead, the word has prepared us for it. Second Peter chapter three verse three says, "Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts." And then Paul says in Second Timothy chapter three, "But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived." And Paul describes their character in the first part of the chapter. But know this: that in the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, the list goes on, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such turn away. And what is interesting is that love is actually a prominent word in this description, but it's the love of self and not the love of God. And love towards God or anything that is right and good, it becomes cold when selfish desire takes over the throne in the heart because you can't serve two masters. The scripture teaches you to love the one and hate the other. But these men will have their limits, as Paul says in verse 9, but they will progress no further for their folly will manifest, will be manifest to all. So we can rest assured that, that God has his answer for this and, and he will have the last word. In fact, he's already, he's already spoken it, which makes it as good as if it has been completed already. And so for those who insist on rejecting him, rejecting Christ, there will be judgment. And we remember that the context that the Lord spoke the words from our, our text this evening is one of, it's one of rejected opportunity. It's one of apostasy, a desolate house, and a coming judgment. And the Lord, with... A broken heart, he exposed this, this mystery of lawlessness that was already at work. And the desolate house that was Judaism, uh, that had become cold and loveless, he left them with a promise, though. Matthew twenty three thirty nine says, For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he's speaking of the time of his coming, when the Jewish people will recognize him as their Messiah. And we see triumph uh, of mercy over judgment in the end. And we are blessed 
because he is building his church, a spiritual house, the household of faith, not as a replacement for the Jewish people at all, but as a, as a means now of making him known in the world until he comes for his church. And so, in spite of the times that we live and, and the, the Lord has, made, has, has given us words of great comfort and instruction uh, in his word for the church, the spiritual house of God, and we'll take a little bit of time to go through that. So, it's Peter that says, chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, coming to him, speaking of the Lord, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So it's encouraging to know that, that even as many are rejecting Christ and have no, no place for his word, uh, hostile towards it, less and less tolerance for his people, the Lord is still building his church. So in spite of all that we see in Christianity, all that disappoints us in, in so many instances, and, and there is a sad departure uh, from the truth of the word, he is still at work, he's still refining and shaping and preparing the bride of Christ. And uh, often we, we only see the flaws in what has marred the church, marred her witness to Christ in the world, but in spite of all that, the Lord continues to add to its number and to build her up. So Paul echoes Peter's words in Ephesians chapter 2, and he says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So, found, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ, the, the, the chief cornerstone, the Word of God is foundational to the church. And when there's any substitute for that, uh, the church is weakened, and it'll just it'll collapse in a matter of time. And we're seeing that. Um, It'll no longer become a place where the Lord is uh, the, the, the dwelling place of God in the Spirit, but it becomes chaotic. It becomes a place where there's unauthorized worship, and there's little to no distinction from the world. And, and when that happens, there's really no ability to reach them with the gospel. But something very encouraging is that as the mystery of lawlessness is at work in the world today, so is the mystery of godliness. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. So what is this mystery of godliness well it's, it's this is the message of the church this is the gospel and paul uses the term mystery again because it was something that was previously not understood but since the coming of christ is his incarnation his death his his burial and resurrection and the fact that when he is preached lives are changed uh, it's also a fact that right now he's he's at the right hand of god he's making intercession for his people and that he will one day return and this is not a concealed truth but it's one to be proclaimed, and, and, to be pro and it is proclaimed with power. And so Paul says in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, 
For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So the message of the church, it needs to remain clear, especially in this hour where there are, there are lost souls to save. And, you know, we haven't seen persecution like the, the early church did, even when Paul was, was still uh, Saul of Tarsus, and he was persecuting the church. But, but in that time of difficulty for the church, God used an ordinary Christian, Ananias, to give sight to Paul, used him. And it's good for us to remember this because we can often become intimidated, <clears throat> excuse me, intimidated in our faith and afraid to offend or to be used when God has given us so much to share. But if God is for us, who can be against us? And we may never know the impact of sharing our faith. I'm, I'm quite certain Ananias never thought that, uh, that, that in the, even, in the day, even now, as we read the words of Paul, that, uh, that, that the Lord would, would use him as he has done to bless us. And so the message of the gospel should never be something that we're apologizing for or afraid to proclaim. And if we have been intimidated to share our faith, there, there is encouragement, not condemnation in God's word for us. Paul felt it necessary to even remind Timothy of this in 2 Timothy chapter 1. It says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God to proclaim, to proclaim Christ. And uh, it comes with a cost, and the scripture is very clear on that, but it also comes with much greater reward. Well, in that passage, Paul also spoke of the church as the pillar and ground of the truth. Well, this is the mission of the church, to stand firm upon the word and, and to hold it out. Um, in ancient times, the pillars would be used not only just as, as structural supports, but they were places to post public announcements. And so the church is held up on the solid ground of the truth. And uh, you know, we right, rightly divide the word. But it's also holding forth this message for anyone who will hear. And when the church is doing this, when it's holding fast the word of life, it's then able to shine the light uh, in the world in a crooked and perverse generation. And so the pillar and the foundation is also it's this picture of stability. This is... This is the house of God, and we are among the household of faith. And when society is crumbling, uh, the church, the individual Christian that holds fast to the word of God will not. It's not a probability. It's not a likelihood that they won't, but it's a fact. The Lord will, will never fail us, and he will never go back on, on one promise. And I think it's important for the church to be reminded of that today because of the activity of evil is increasing. We see that. The, the lawlessness, at least from our perspective, seems to be abounding and society appears to be unraveling but the church that holds to the word it weathers that storm and it's the same for the individual christian uh, it's, it's never to be viewed in weakness uh, because it's upheld by the builder by god himself and the full expectation is that we do stand ephesians chapter 6 therefore take up the whole armor of god that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand so it's interesting that the pillars at the entrance of the temple, Solomon's temple, and I probably am not pronouncing this correctly, but it was named Jachin and Boaz. Jachin has the meaning God shall establish, and Boaz means in, its, in it is strength. And so these pillars are a reminder that the house of God is established by God and it stands in his strength. And so 
we are encouraged that the church, the true church of God, will not be overcome by the darkness, no matter how dark it is, and continues to shine the light of the gospel. And so this is work for us. This means we have work to do in such times. It's not a time for fear. And uh, just a note on that. It's easy to say. Uh, it's very easy to say. Don't be afraid. It's another thing, certainly, to do it when you're faced with a trial. And uh, somehow when we're faced with something threatening, we, we can't seem to avoid a fear or anxiety getting some kind of hold on us somehow. And uh, Jesus knows this about us. He's, he, he knew this about his disciples the night of his arrest. And so he says in John chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The peace that the world gives is man-made. It's, uh, it's unstable. It's not lasting. It's dependent on circumstances and it's dependent on resources. But the peace that God's give, God gives is a gift. And it's dependent upon our relationship with him. And uh, the Lord was always in command every situation that he was in. Everything, every time we see him in a, some kind of difficulty, he was always in command. And, and even on the night of his arrest, <clears throat> he was at peace teaching his disciples. So when anxiety is, is in the heart, fear comes, uh, prayer is our response. It's, it fixes our eyes on Christ in, instead of our circumstances. David said in Psalm chapter 16, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart, heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. So prayer puts the focus where it needs to be, on on the Lord, on the one who is in command of the situation already. Uh, we have a great example of this, a great picture of this in the life of Daniel in the Old Testament. Um, his freedom to worship God, it was threatened by a, a crooked government. And his response was prayer. We, we have no record of him breaking down. We have no record of him losing faith, even when he was faced with the lion's den. But he had, he had settled it in his heart early that God was to be obeyed and trusted rather than men. And, and when he faced the, was faced with this pressure, there, there was no compromise. And Paul makes this connection between prayer and the peace of God very clear in Philippians chapter 4. Passages, again, other passages we know very well. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts, that's a military term of protection, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And uh, very challenging to live out, but not because the Lord has made it too difficult. It's often because we don't recognize the greatness of God or thank him for what he's already done. But we keep at it nonetheless when fear comes. Jesus said, men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Because fear has this paralyzing effect on us. It, it, it keeps us from action. And we can have a fear of failure or maybe letting the Lord down because of our struggles with the flesh. And uh, the Lord's not afraid. He's not afraid of our failure either. And uh, in reality, I mean, what, what in our service have we not come short in? Uh, so the Lord will not cast us away for failure, but instead he, he keeps working with us uh, and in us to make us more like him. First Thessalonians chapter 5 23 and 24, he says, it said, Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, 
And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. So we can rest in that. Well, where lawlessness is at work, God's, God and God's people are also at work, uh, even if it doesn't seem to be the case. And uh, Jesus told a, a parable of the wheat and the tares that gives us an example of this. And um, his disciples came to him and they asked him the meaning of this parable. And so he gives them this response. He says, he answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of, the, of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. And then there's, he speaks of the judgment. And so this gives us encouragement that the Lord knows those who are his. And uh, he is fully capable of judging righteously in the end. And he will do that. Um, it's not the job of the Christian to, to uproot every evil in, in every place that, that, uh, that he or she goes. But instead, it's to preach the gospel. And I think in witnessing, sometimes we can, we can confuse this a bit. It's easy to get hung up on a particular Issue, trying to correct a, sin, a sinful issue uh, or advocate for a particular biblical principle rather than just preaching Christ. And uh, the emphasis should always be Christ. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And uh, the need of every unsaved person is Christ and the correction of those sinful practices will, will follow. So... Um, as far as removal of lawlessness and those who practice it, the Lord will, will have the final word. He makes that very clear, and the righteous will be vindicated. And in the meantime, we preach the gospel. Well, now to just speak for a little bit on God's faithfulness, to look a little bit in, in his word on his faithfulness and our responsibility to be faithful to him. Um, we want to look. Uh, we, we we want to be responsible and to be faithful to the Lord. That's that's our response. That's what we desire. And He's given us every reason to trust Him. And uh, it's it's so helpful on any occasion, but especially when there's uncertainty or there's there's anxiety that is weighing on us to to, to be able to meditate on the faithfulness of God, perhaps uh, on behalf of a loved one or, or even ourselves, if there's an issue. Uh, and, you know, the Lord has always, he's never failed us. He's, he's, he's batting a thousand. There are never any errors or never any mistakes, nothing we can ever point to and accuse him of, of doing wrong. And so there's, there's great stability in the word of God as we go to it, as we, as we find him there. And Proverbs twelve twenty five says, Anxiety in the, heart, in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. And what better word could we have than the word of God for anything that uh, is causing us to be anxious. David said in the Psalms, my eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. So he has an answer for every, every issue that causes us to lose sleep, to have an anxious heart. And as we consider the, the faithfulness of God, it's, it's important that we, that we remember his faithfulness toward the unrepentant to give every opportunity for salvation and forgiveness. And, and uh, each of us were, 
in that category, and we're very grateful that he held out as long as he did uh, for us. It puts uh, into perspective the, the long suffering of God toward a, a defiant culture like we see uh, on the rise more and more today. An example of this is the account of Jonah. and We're, I think, very familiar with this story. God in his long suffering toward a people that were not his own, he commissioned Jonah to preach to them because uh, the judgment of God was imminent and they, they, he wanted them to repent. But Jonah was not obedient, at least at first. And uh, there was no love for the Assyrians in Jonah's heart at all. They were a very wicked, a very cruel people. And so from a natural perspective, we can, we can kind of understand that. But this was not God's perspective, nor was it an acceptable excuse for him to disobey. Uh, Nineveh was one of the largest cities in the world at that time, a city of many souls, and there were children there growing up in such a godless environment. And as interesting as you read through that account uh, in the book of Jonah, that uh, the, the word great is used quite a few times. It just stands out. A great storm, a, a great fish, a great, a great city. But what stands out as the greatest of all is, is the grace and the mercy of God toward this defiant and this wicked people. And uh, Jonah confessed this even. He did it as a complaint, but he said, uh, he said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Well, we say, yes, this is our God, and we are so grateful. We're so thankful for his patience with us and, and, uh, and desiring that for our lost loved ones as well. And um, so... As we consider the, the lawless and the loveless and the judgment that awaits them if they, if they don't repent, we consider our own commission and our message. Jonah's message was repentance and, and judgment, but ours is so much fuller, salvation through Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And it's also just a, a reminder that it's our responsibility to pray for the lost that we come into contact with, to pray for them regularly. And maybe there will be an opportunity that the Lord will give us and, uh, and to understand also that it's, uh, that it's God's desire that they be saved and have a knowledge of the truth. And that means that someone has to tell them. We also remember God's faithfulness to the body of Christ. And uh, it's, you know, it's difficult to know where to begin with that. But we're going to take four references, all from Romans chapter 8, because it's such a, a highly concentrated passage of the promises of God that we know very well, but I think are good for us to just be reminded of, demonstrating his faithfulness toward us. So we have forgiveness, Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In spite of all of our shortcomings, our failures, God sees us in the perfection of Christ. We have sonship. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So there's freedom from the law. We're not walking on eggshells with the Lord. There's reverence, and, and we love him, and we respect him, and honor him, but uh, we... We're in the family of God, knowing that he cares for the believer as his own child in, in whatever circumstance that they're in. And then we have the hope of glory. This is verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So whatever suffering we face in this life be far outweighed uh, by Christ's return and, and the joy of heaven. And then we have his inseparable love, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And uh, a reminder that the Lord permits trials in our lives, but he is always with us in them. And uh, we, may, we may fail the Lord under the pressure of it, but it does not separate us from his love. And uh, these are just these are more than just words. And there's all of the all of the the scripture to us. And just it's not just words. These aren't just uh, sayings. These are promises. These are things that we've experienced, and they create a love response in us that should motivate faithfulness to Him. And with that in mind, uh, as we close this evening, it's it's always an encouragement uh, to hear the words of the Lord to the church at Philadelphia, the faithful church. And so Jesus is addressing the, the pastor of that church uh, in Revelation chapter 3, and he says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my name. The church at Philadelphia, just a beautiful example to us of, the, of faithfulness to God. No flash, no flare to this church. Um, anything that was apparently uh, notable to the observer, but they were very much noticed to the Lord. It was a small church. But they were unashamed of the name of Christ, and they were eager to preach the gospel. And the city of Philadelphia, interestingly, it was located on a main road, a main route from Rome to the east. And they were kind of a a border city. They were referred to as the gateway to the east. And because of this location, it was in a very strategic area with great opportunity to preach the gospel. But a major problem with the city was that it was located on a a fault line, and it was subject to earthquakes. And at least one had already destroyed the city some years before. And so it was in this precarious situation of instability from the earthquakes, but then they also had to deal with opposition from the Jews uh, who who had been stirred up by Satan and being used by him to oppose uh, the work of ministry there. But it was to this church that the Lord came, and he came with no rebuke. But instead, he commended them, and he encouraged them to stand strong where they were planted, even though there was instability and uncertainty and opposition, but to stand strong where they were planted for ministry. They had a little strength, but the Lord would give them the strength to do what he commanded them to do. And in this address from the Lord, we we see that he rewards their service, and he gives them an open door of ministry. And this is something that is... So important, not just for a church, but for an individual believer to to take note of that 
The Lord is not looking for quantity, but he's looking for faithfulness. And he rewards faithfulness with great opportunity to, to serve him, to serve him more. And the result of, our, of that service is that because he is blessing, souls are, are saved. And so the Lord knew all about the instability and the opposition that surrounded this church. But he said to them in verse 12, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And so the Lord establishes, the Lord strengthens the names of the two pillars uh, at the entrance of the temple that we we talked about earlier. And uh, just the reminder to to stand firm when everything else crumbles. Uh, The Lord enables us to do that. He establishes, he strengthens. And although we, we, we still have to wait for that uh, time when we will meet him and have a, a, a deeper knowledge of him that we will have in heaven, uh, he has written us on the palms of his hands. Isaiah 49, verse 16 says, See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. So he sets our boundaries. He gives us opportunity to serve him within those boundaries while we wait uh, while we wait for that city with, with foundations, because nothing in this world has foundations that will last. So as we go out this week, may we run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, considering him who endured hostility from sinners, uh, that we might not be discouraged, but that we would be um, invigorated with his love, that we could serve him in the spirit wherever he has us and whatever the circumstances may be and uh, may souls be saved let's praise well let's pray together well father we do thank you for your word we thank you for your faithfulness we ask that you would go before us the remainder of this week and that you would get us all home safely we ask this in jesus name amen